Amen. Well, good morning. My name is Sam Caston Smith. For those of you who don't know me, I'm the, the headmaster of Bethany Christian School across the street. And it's always a great privilege to get to, to preach. It's been a while since I've been up here. And so when Tom asked me to come and preach on June 28th, I was like, yes. And he said what the passage was. I went home and looked at it. And I was like, yes. Mm-mm. Uh, it's a difficult passage. Tom kind of seems to have a knack about this because you can remember Carter three weeks ago being like, why did he give me this passage? Tom has this knack of skipping town at just the right times. Um, so before this sermon, Will was, or, uh, Carter was telling me, man, this, this, this sermon is heavy. And Will, who's one of our interns, looked at me and said, yeah, but Sam, Sam's pretty good at making heavy beautiful. To which I said, thank you. (laughs) My wife always tells me, don't go in there and say fat jokes. Can't help it. Can't help it. But this is a difficult sermon. It's difficult. I want to warn you up front that there are going to be parts of this sermon that if it communicates what Jesus is communicating, should make you a little uncomfortable. But this sermon is not intended to make you leave this place feeling devastated. I want you to get this. Jesus is coming in this passage of of Lazarus and the rich man. And he's not coming to you to tell you and to beat you up and to nag at you and saying, you are not good enough for him. Rather, it's Jesus coming and pleading with you to realize that he is good enough for you. And everything else in this world that clouds your relationship with God, that prevents you from living open hands all in for the gospel, for his kingdom's sake, the things that you cling to in this world, instead of him, the things that detract from your relationship to him, let him go. Live with open hands. He is good enough for you. And your possessions are merely given to you as a steward, as a manager, to live with and to possess and to use for his glory. My wife was telling me the story of a a missionary who, in the early 1900s, went over to Africa. And he went over to Africa and he left all on the table. Comes back, he's on a, a cruise liner back to the United States and he had left it all there. I mean, beat up, through misery, poverty, everything. And he's on his way back to the United States and he's coming to port and he looks out and he sees everybody's waving flags and there's trumpet players out there and people are dancing and rejoicing. And for a moment, a brief moment, he thinks, they haven't forgotten about me. This work that I've been doing is being honored. And so as they get to get off the boat, he notices this great entourage surrounding President Theodore Roosevelt as they get off the boat. And all of this fanfare was for him because he had just returned from Africa where he had gone on safari. And he went home and he and his wife rented this broken down apartment and couldn't find a job. And he just sat there and spiraled into depression saying, God, is what I've done not good enough? 
Why is it that he gets all this fanfare and I am forgotten and left poor and desperate? And his wife said to him, you need to go into your prayer closet and have it out with God. This is eating you up. So the man goes into his room and he has it out with God. God, have you forgotten me? Look at what I have given for you. Look at everything I've laid down for you. And he comes back out of the room with a calm over him. And his wife said, and? And he says, well, I was having it out with God. And it was like the arm of God surrounded me and brought me near to him and just said to me, Henry, you're not home yet. Your fanfare hasn't come yet. The celebration of you laying everything down here will make what Teddy Roosevelt got look like peanuts by comparison. Henry, don't live for this day. Live for that day. And that's what Tom keeps saying. Jesus is prompting us to ask the question, are we living for this day or for that day? So to get context for this passage, right before we jump into Luke 16, verse 19, which is where we begin today, I want to give you a passage. Jesus has just been having basically an argument, trying to open the eyes of the Pharisees. And he says this, you'll remember this from last week, no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one or love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. You can't serve God and the things of this world. You can't have them both master you. And so the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, the prosperity gospel crew, ridiculed him. And so Jesus responds, and he gives this story, this heavy story and beautiful story of Lazarus and the rich man. And so it starts this way in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every single day. Now, who is this rich man? Well, he's identified by his incredible clothing, his wealth, his food. But what do you notice about this rich man? What's his name? Jesus intentionally leaves him anonymous. Why does he do that? Because as we're going to see in a minute, this man is going to be blotted out from the annals of history, from the annals of eternity. No one will ever need to know his name. And in this man's destination, which is hell, he will have no need of a name because there are no relationships in hell. His house is this mansion. And we know that it's an enormous mansion because it says that he has his own gate in the next verse. He's clothed in purple, which is extremely expensive. The dye to make your clothes purple. Only royalty or high nobility had purple clothing. This fine linen that it's talking about, the Greek word busis, literally, Herodotus, Herodotus, the historian, compares it to silk. Its nickname was woven air because it was so amazing. And he wears this every day. And he feasted, this, this word feasted, it's the same word that's used when the prodigal returns to the father. An unbelievable, huge feast, but it doesn't just leave it there. It says that he feasted sumptuously, extravagantly. This guy is living high on the hog with the most intense luxury imaginable every single day. 
And Jesus starts with this man because this is the man that the Pharisees would hold up. Clearly, he's blessed by God. He's got it all. He's got dignitaries coming to his house for big feasts. He's got the best of clothing, the best of money, the hugest house. Surely he must be the blessed one. And so the next verse comes and gives us another man. And it says, And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now what do we know? Who is this Lazarus guy? Well, he's identified exactly the opposite. By his lack of clothing, wealth, food, or health, But Jesus knows his name. Who's more blessed? It's the only parable that we have, and I think it's a parable. Some people think that Jesus is referring to an actual event. This is the only parable in which a man is named, so this guy must be important. What does Lazarus even mean? Well, Lazarus is the Greek translation of the Hebrew name Eliezer, which means... God is my helper. That's the only thing that you know about this man's. And God, Jesus is telling you this because he wants you to know that this man's helper is God. And that's the only thing he has in his favor. We know that he comes to this gate nearly naked. Why do we know that? Well, because the dogs come and lick at his sores. So this other man who's dressed in robes and has multiple layers, no, this man comes and he's so exposed that the dogs feast at his sores. He's not taken care of. He's been shown no compassion. He has no bandaging. We know that he's severely handicapped. How? Because it says he's laid down at the gate. Somebody has brought him. And the word there that's laid, that's cleaned up, the literal Greek word is balo. That means thrown down, cast down. Again, it's another indication that this man has been shown no compassion. There's no one who stays with him to help protect from dogs. He's too weak to fend the dogs away when they come to harass him. He's utterly vulnerable, utterly exposed. And you have to ask yourself, why are the dogs gathering at this rich man's gate? Because they know what? This is the place where the rich man throws out his scraps. And yet, as we'll see in the story, we know that the dogs got the scraps because the, the Lazarus dies of neglect. Horrible picture. Horrible picture. But as we'll see, they're both going to have one thing in common. Both of them die. Both of them die, and both of them will face the judgment of God. The next verse, verse 22, says... So all of that was this day, and now we move on to that day. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side, and the rich man died also and was buried, and as we'll see, he goes to torment, to hell. And you have this this rich man who is lifted up and exalted by the Pharisees because he's so blessed, he has so much, and this beggar, Lazarus, 
the Pharisees would have looked at and said, he's He's worthless. If God loved him, he would, he would have helped him. What do you, God is my helper. What, that name only mocks him. Look, he's left there with sores and nakedness and torment of dogs. Nobody helps him. He has no family. The rich man walks by him every day and scoffs and doesn't do a thing to help him. And the Pharisees look at the rich man and say he's blessed. And they look at Lazarus and they say he is forsaken, cursed, even though his name means helped by God. Now, the rich man, well, let's say Lazarus, the poor man, does he earn his salvation because he's poor? No. He earns his salvation because God is his helper. He's not saved by his poverty even more than the rich man will be damned because he's wealthy. The difference is Lazarus has God as his helper. The rich man has everything but God. And so the poor man died and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side and the rich man also died and was buried. And here you have the only thing they have in common, death. The humble man Lazarus is lifted up in the glory and the rich man is buried. See the difference? Is buried and will be cast into hell. And Lazarus is welcomed into glory and you have to imagine this poor man who's endured so much suffering. Day in, day out, neglected, abandoned, now all of a sudden is going to be carried by the angels into glory? This is, this is a privilege that's reserved for Elijah, right? He's going to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. He is going to be welcomed inside of the mansion of heaven where he is going to feast sumptuously every day for all of eternity. He's going to sit At the side of Abraham, the seat of honor, this man outside the gate that everybody neglected in heaven is given the seat of honor at the eternal banquet table of God. The rejected man of earth has now become the honored man of heaven. There's a verse in scripture that says this, do not forget to entertain strangers for by so doing some people have entertained angels without knowing it. There's a Lazarus in your life. We live in Fort Lauderdale. It's, it's just about inevitable that somewhere in your travels, on the way to work, in your family, your coworker, somebody in your circle, there is a Lazarus in your life. And if you knew now that on that day, that Lazarus would be seated at the honored seat of heaven, would you treat him differently? The person that you drive by on the street, the the person that you neglect, ignore and think, I don't want to get involved in that mess. If you saw them sitting at the right hand of Abraham, would it change your mind? If you knew that God had that opinion of them, would it change your opinion of them? Something tells me it would. And in Hades, now we get back to the rich man. In Hades, being in torment, he lifted his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Hades is one of the names that denotes hell, Gehenna, uh, outer darkness, eternal punishment, the lake of fire. All these things denote eternal hell. And you have to ask this question. Here he is in Hades and he's in torment. And he looks up and he sees Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. Now, I don't know if, I don't think this actually happens for those that are 
and hell. But Jesus is driving home a point here. He looks up and of all the millions of people in glory with Christ and God in heaven, this man sees Lazarus. Why does God give him that glimpse? Because all of this man's wealth is now coming back to testify against him. The one who felt privileged high and lifted up is now shown that in the the spiritual realm, he is low, while Lazarus, who he treated low, is high. And notice this, and we'll see this in a minute, that he knows Lazarus by name. He wasn't ignorant. He walked by Lazarus outside of his gate every day, saw the dog, saw the torment, saw the the, the sores, and walked by him every day without ever giving him a hand. He saw his nakedness. He knew that Lazarus had been abandoned. He heard his cries for food. He saw the torment inflicted by the scavenger's dogs. And in all those sufferings, it never once pulled at the heartstrings of the rich man. And now that the curtain is lifted and we see Lazarus in a seat of honor and glory, you wonder, how is the rich man going to respond? In torment and hell, how is he going to respond? And you assume that he's going to be crushed with guilt, right? You assume that he's going to plead with Lazarus, oh man, I am so sorry for the ways that I passed by you and the ways that I squandered my wealth and the ways that I just threw the scraps that the dogs ate before you did. I'm so sorry, Lazarus, please forgive me. No. He doesn't ask for a chance to make things right. Listen to what he says. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now remember, he's talking to the Pharisees. So when he cries out, Father Abraham, the Pharisees would have gone, what? You mean he's one of us? He's not an atheist? He's not a pagan worshiping some strange foreign god? He's calling upon Father Abraham? What? And he says, have mercy on me, for I've sinned against the Lord and against Lazarus. Does he say that? No. He says, have mercy on me, for I'm in anguish in this flame. And I want you to see this because this is essential. This rich man's heart and his desires are entirely unchanged in hell. He still treats Lazarus as if he's a mere servant of his own desires. Send Lazarus. This man who has laid out his his life that I ignored, that I gave no mercy to, make him come and show me mercy. Make him realize that I'm still on the totem pole a little higher than that dirtball, Lazarus. And by the way, send him down to where I am. Let him come down and endure the flames of agony that I'm now in so that I can get just a little bit of comfort. He's entirely unrepentant, entirely self-absorbed, and he will remain that way forever. I hate preaching about hell. I'm going to tell you that right now. I'm already terrified of what I'm going to feel like after this sermon. 
telling you the truth. But Jesus preaches more about hell than he does about heaven. And that preaching is sourced by his love. He does not want anyone to go there. He offers every opportunity to avoid it, even giving of his own life. Hell is a scary place. You see, in heaven, we hope for heaven because we see an end to our sin, which destroys us, that brings us misery, that brings into this world injustice and pain and heartache. And in heaven, there will be an end to sin. Jesus, when you are glorified, will put an end to it, and you will forever be with him to have sanctuary from that. In hell, there is no day where sin comes to an end. If there were a person in hell who would repent and cry out for forgiveness, Lord, save me. Do you know what would happen? That person would be released from hell. That will never happen. Do you know why? Because the Lord is not present with that person in hell. The spirit that leads us to repentance works among us now. But the Lord, the spirit of God will not be present in hell to lead somebody to repentance. You will stay in hell forever and your heart will only get hardened more so and more so and more so. And today is the day of salvation. This day is the day of salvation. On that day, you won't want it. If you are not in Christ and you go there, you will only hate him more and more and more. And all, there's no grace anymore. There's no relationships. Imagine this. In my sin, it's the grace of God that smacks me on the forehead and wakes me up and makes me turn. In this world, I have relationships of people who come to me and say, Sam, you're being an idiot. Stop. In hell. The seeds of anger and bitterness and envy and despair and addiction and arrogance and entitlement and hatred and greed and all manners of wickedness only fester and multiply. There's nothing to turn you from it. And they multiply and you are left to yourself forever and ever and ever. (sighs) C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this. Christianity asserts that every individual human being is going to live forever, and this must be either true or false. Now, there are a good many things which would not be worth bothering about if I were going to live only for 70 years, but which I had better bother about very seriously if I'm going to live forever. Perhaps my bad temper or my jealousy are gradually getting worse, so gradually that the increase in 70 years would not be very noticeable. But it might be absolute hell in a million years. In fact, if Christianity is true, hell is precisely the correct term for what it would be. With no intervening check on your heart, the dial of intensity is turned up on all your emotions, and now fear becomes paralyzing terror. Anger becomes all-consuming rage. Sadness becomes total despondency. Insecurity becomes absolute self-loathing. A heart of gossip turns to a heart of hatred. And let me tell you, that terrifies me far more than a flame does. (sighs) 
And you look at this man and what are the desires of the rich man's heart as he suffers in heaven? What does he cry out for? I mean, think about it. He calls out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And if you didn't see the rest of that sentence, what are you assuming he's going to cry out for? Please let me into where you are. That looks amazing. Please let me come to that feast. He asked for a drop of water from the fingertip of Lazarus. It's stunning. He's content to be in hell so long as he can get a moment's comfort at a time. This man has not changed a thing. This is how he lived his whole life. God stood in front of him and said, come to me. I'm the one who will satisfy for you for eternity. And this man said, no, I'm going to pursue all of my appetites and all of my desires in this world moment by moment. And in hell, he's unchanged. He's chasing after a moment's relief. Do we live like that? Do we live knowing that Jesus has come, the wellspring of all things eternal, this inheritance that's beyond amazing, who offers it to flow into us and through us to the world? Are we content to receive that? Or do we, like Lazarus, look for the petty things that might fill us for a moment, that give us a moment's comfort? And God and the angels of heaven are looking down at us as crazy as we think he is to ask for a drop of water. That's how God and the angels look at us as we fumble around for all this world's petty garbage. Don't they realize what I'm offering? Don't they realize how amazingly, infinitely valuable it is that I offer them freely and they're content to be apart from me, scrounging for the scraps? Again, absolutely nothing has changed in the heart of this rich man. He lived in the world seeking temporal pleasure, and now he selfishly lives in hell to string together tiny instants of relief and satisfaction. That's all he wants. He doesn't want God. He doesn't want forgiveness. He wants me. Me. Serve me. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Here's the definitive teaching where Jesus comes to the love wins idea that, well, your hell's not eternal and you can get out of it and don't worry, everything will eventually win in the end. No. No, hear that. What does he say? A great chasm has been fixed. Those who are there cannot go there and those who are there cannot go there. This is eternal, fixed irreversible. This is intense. It's worthy of some consideration. Because today is the day of salvation. So here again, you see Abraham confirming that this guy is a child, a descendant of his bloodline that that blows the Pharisees away. And it's this day versus that day. He says, remember, when he was there, he got Bad things and you got good things and now he's in paradise and you're in torment. This day, that day. 
have been flipped. So, so what is hell? Now, there's a lot of talk about hell being flames and God's wrath, and I think there's something to that. A lot of people think that the flames imagery just means that you'll forever disintegrate. You'll ever, forever decompose. All who you are will forever be broken down to its tiniest, most humiliating extreme. And then there's those who think that it's literal. But let's just take the figurative side of this. C.S. Lewis says this, and I think he's right. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. I willingly believe that the damned are in one sense successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Think about that. People who have pushed God away, who've rejected His word, His counsel, who hate this notion that something wiser, somebody bigger, greater than them has authority over their lives. They have shoved Him away. They've mocked the idea their whole life. And now that they are in hell, the gates of hell are locked from the inside, just like you see this man, this rich man. He doesn't ask to be with God. Stay away. Just give me comfort the way he's lived his whole life. And in our discomfort with the doctrine of hell, I'm with you. Like, I want to shout, God, do something that will allow these people to be cleansed. And God did this at Calvary. And he extended the open invitation. And so so they've passed up that chance. And so then we want to shout, but God, just, just, just leave them alone. And in hell, that is exactly what he does. under the weight of their own sin, under the weight of their own perversions and corruptions forever. In my own corruptions, apart from Christ, I wouldn't want to be in the presence of God. The all-consuming holiness, this God who's an all-consuming flame, who has to transform me and clothe me in the righteousness of His Son so that I might be with Him. My goodness, what would happen to me? What a hell it would be if I were to stand before Him and all of my corruptions and all of His holiness. What makes us think that would be better? And so you ask this question, how can God be loving and send people to everlasting judgment? That's our society's rallying cry today. How can God be loving and have judgment? And so let me if, imagine this were God. I say to the universalist who says God has no standards. He welcomes and embraces everybody. And let me tell you what that looks like. It means that in all of my corruptions and all of my sinful desires. There is no jealousy on behalf of God who says, no, that will lead to destruction and misery. Turn. He doesn't come to you when you're faltering, when you're flailing around the miseries of this life to say, I've got a better way for you. My spirit will come and live inside of you so that you become more Christ-like in joy and have life. No, this God says, I love them so much. I'm going to let them do whatever they want. 
What would this world look like if God had no jealousy, if God had no standards, if God had no judgment? You see what happens in a world that has lost its fear of God. My goodness. It would just run rampant. And then those of us who live in this world in the misery with with the hope of heaven, it would never end. Our hope, our eternal hope, would be surrounded by people, including ourselves, that would never be perfected because God never calls for perfection. He never transforms. He never glorifies. And so you live forever in a world overrun with wickedness and vice and misery and depression, and God just says, I'm fine with it. Let me tell you about my God. My God created a world to be in relationship with man. He was perfectly content, but he made man to be in relationship with. And that man spat in his face and said, I want to do it alone. I want to be in control. And God was grieved. And for a season, he said, okay, you think you can stand it on your own. I want you to try. And man was so absolutely disgusting That God, who would not live without man, but who also didn't want man to be plagued by sin for all eternity, comes into the world. He doesn't send a man as his messenger. He sends himself, the Son of God, to come into the world to take all of the world's corruptions to himself so that he can clothe them with perfections, so that he can forge a day when all of this world's pain and death and disease and despair and depression is wiped away. But he will not. He will not not forge a future without standards and accountability. Thank God. I hate the thought of hell, but you know what I hate worse? This hell enduring forever and ever for everyone. God is too kind for that. And he said there, then I beg you, Father, send him, Lazarus, He's barking orders again to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that he may warn them unless they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Again, the rich man is treating Lazarus like the errand boy. Send him. And in the statement, he's launching a not so subtle accusation against God. God, if you had just warned me, I wouldn't be here. So go and tell my brothers. And Abraham is like, well, hold on a minute. You've had Moses. You've had the prophets. This is God's word. It's come to you. It, it hasn't changed. He's calling you to live for that world and not this world. Jesus is merely illustrating what God had already declared. And so Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And remember, he's speaking to the Pharisees who are religious experts. They know the word inside and out. They should get this stuff. And here Jesus is saying, if you want to avoid hell, you have what you need in Moses and the prophets. And yet the Pharisees had missed it altogether. Does it bother you that Abraham doesn't send anyone to warn the brothers? It shouldn't. Because he did. He sent you. He sent me. To go into this world to those who don't know Christ, to those who are just cycling toward the cliffs of destruction, and to say, stop, there is a God who loves you, who considers you all valuable, who laid down his life for you. He has sent us. 
And we don't like evangelism because it's uncomfortable. It is. You feel goofy. I remember first when I was in seminary, they made us do EE, evangelism explosion, where you had to go out on the streets with the thing and say, can I ask you a couple of questions to total strangers? And you felt like, oh, I feel like a Jehovah's Witness. Get me out of here. And then you do it for a while. And you have success and you see people come to the Lord and all of a sudden, whatever means of evangelism you want to use is a beautiful thing. Penn Jillette's an atheist. I'll read to you something that he wrote on his blog. Actually, he did a video blog. He said, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to either heaven or hell and you think it's not really worth telling them about Christ because it would make it socially awkward... How much do you have to hate that person not to proselytize from an atheist? In verse 30, and he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. In other words, they may not listen to the word of God. They may think that's all rubbish. But if you send somebody from the dead to scare them into it, then they'll believe. And he said, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And again, he's telling them, send Lazarus. My brothers will ignore the word of God, but they'll believe if somebody frightens them into it. You know, it's interesting here. This poor man named Lazarus is the one who's getting barked. Send him from the realms of glory down into the world so that the Pharisees, my brothers, right? So that they will believe because they'll believe if somebody shocks them into it. And I think this is just a fascinating thing that Jesus does because a short time later on his journeys in the Gospels, he will come to a village of Bethany. And he waited before he went there because he knew that the women who had called Mary and Martha had said, our brother's sick, come heal him, come heal him, come heal him, hurry, hurry, hurry. And Jesus took his time so that their brother would die. And he's on the way and the people are like, why did you do that? Why did you do that? Why did you do that? And you know what he tells his disciples? I've done this so that you may believe. And he gets there and do you know what words he speaks? Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. Coincidence? And so this dead man from the realms of glory, a friend of God, is awakened. He comes out of his tomb, right? And everybody's blown away. The Jews, the family, they're all looking at Christ like this guy is the real deal. Let's follow him, give everything for him. But listen to what happens here. And the next, in this passage, next slide. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. And so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. So this rich man who's begging, please send Lazarus, send Lazarus so that my brothers will believe. Jesus is so gracious, he did. And their hearts were so consumed with this day that they wouldn't even hear the hope of the gospel from a man who had risen from the dead. 
the man who has risen from the dead comes and he speaks to us. He calls us to let go of the petty, this world that's crumbling and decaying all around us and to live for him and that day when he will be our great reward. Let's summarize the story so far, okay? Here's this day. It starts with a rich man who's in glorious purple clothing and silken robes. And he's inside a mansion and he's comfortable. He's exalted with the best of dignitaries. He's got everything but God. And he's feasting, but he's unwilling to help. Then you have Lazarus. What's his story? Well, he's naked to the dogs, eat at his sores. He's outside the gate, covered with affliction. He's humiliated. He's alone with the dogs. He has nothing but God. He longs for the crumbs and he's seemingly helpless. That's this day. But notice what happens that day. Now the rich man is stripped of his clothing. He's outside the gates. He's in total anguish, humiliated, and wrath alone with the criminals of hell. He has nothing at all anymore. Longing for just a drop. He's helpless and abandoned. But now Lazarus is clothed in Christ. He's inside heaven. The total bliss and delight, exalted in glory with God and the saints He has God in everything. He's eternally satisfied and he is helped by God. And here we stop for a moment and we say, which is better this day or that? And I want you to stop for a moment because the story, you know, who do you relate to? Do you relate to the rich man? Does does this make you go? Or do you relate to Lazarus? And stop for a moment and I want you to see that this story has spiritual eyes. Are you so tired and beat up by this world that you're outside the gates apart from Christ hoping and hungering for something more? Or are you the rich man who just strives after this world and leaves God as an afterthought? Let me tell you a different story. I'll close with this. Once upon a time, there was a man who was exceedingly wealthy, abundant. He was clothed in robes of royalty. Every day he feasted with the best feast. He Praise was just heaped on him, heaped on him, heaped on him. He had comfort and delight. He was in the mansion unrivaled. His wealth and abundance couldn't be touched. And he looked out and he saw swarms of people who were covered with affliction, covered with the affliction of sin, lost to their own devices, permanently exiled, lost outside the gates of God's mansion, who were on their own. And this man, dressed in the purple regal robes, leaves his palace. And he goes outside the gates to rescue those that are afflicted. And this is what we see. Look at these comparisons of the rich man versus Lazarus. Let me just change the names on there. Jesus endured all that we read about with the rich man. We read about the rich man's suffering and everything inside of us wants to go, no, no. Jesus came into this world and faced the wrath of God in hell. He took on all the sufferings so that you could rejoice like Lazarus. 
He was the rich man who became the poor man so that you, the poor man, could become the rich man. He stands and offers his grace this day to anybody who will come and receive him and his goodness and his inheritance. And that is an offer that you should not pass up because this world, it'll all be taken. It's a guarantee the atheist and the Christian alike agree on that. But he gives you an unshakable inheritance that can never be stripped from you. Today is the day of salvation. If you don't know the Lord, grab hold of him. So in the story, you see Lazarus and the rich man, and you see how things play out on this day. And you see Lazarus and the rich man, and you see how things play out on that day. And I'm going to tell you, You will never live a life of radical grace and generosity until you realize that spiritually and eternally speaking, you are the poor man covered with sores outside the gate, longing to be satisfied. Christ is the man clothed in regal attire, dwelling in his glorious estate, satisfied to the fullest every day. Adored by the greatest angels and dignitaries of history, but unlike this rich man, Christ left everything. He doesn't come to give scraps. He gives himself everything for you. So here's what I want you to take away from this. One, this sermon is not about whether you are good enough. This sermon comes and asks your heart, is Christ good enough? How can he not look at this? He gives everything. If you think he's good enough, then leave here considering all your possessions in this world, your house, your money, your cars, boats. See that you're a steward and commit them to his use for his glory and his kingdom. How can you use them as a steward to bring about a harvest that will go on forever? That's one. Two, come up with at least one person who's outside your gate. Who is the Lazarus that's outside of your gate? Who needs encouragement? Who needs help? Who needs resources? And help that person. So consider your resources. Come up with one person who's outside your gate. And think of a person who's outside his gate. Go to that person. Share the gospel with them. If you're uncomfortable with that, invite them to church. Let them see the love and beauty of Christ in you. Let them see the power of the gospel working through you. Let them get a hint that you have an eternal inheritance that can't be shaken. And they see you as different when this life blows winds and waves and everybody else has moved all around. But you're standing on the rock because you know the only one that matters. Consider it all his. Think of a person who's outside your gate and help them. Think of a person who's outside his gate and help them. If you're outside the gate, you know the emptiness of this world and the struggles of your soul, and Christ right now has brought you here. He's called you to bring you freedom and hope. And if you want to know how to surrender to his love, come to us at the end of this service and let us talk with you about how beautiful Christ is and what he offers through his gospel. Let's pray.
Father, Lord, I thank you so much that you have come into this world, that through my own vices I had made myself covered with sores. In my own strength, I was in poverty outside of your gates. I wanted to do it all on my own, Lord. But you were so gracious that even though I deserved to be left outside the gate, you came to me and raised me up and you cleansed me and you brought me into your mansion and clothed me in regal robes, the hope of everlasting glory and joy with you forever as I truly was created to be, Lord. Lord, I thank you for that. I pray for those that are out of the gate in our city, the poor, the afflicted, the depressed, Lord, that you would make us agents of your grace to go and be generous to them. And for those that don't know you, that are outside of your heavenly gates, that you would give us courage to be grateful for the gift that we have and to share that gift with others. Lord, I pray that you would reap a great harvest in our city, our country, our world, that you would bring revival and that more and more we would get a tiny taste of heaven in this fallen, hurting, and broken world. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.